Fill our hearts. Fill our minds. Fill our lives. Give us a fresh understanding of your word this morning. Help us leave here knowing that you are good. Let us come and taste of the Lord. Let us taste of your word. Let us experience the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're here. Holy Spirit, open our hearts. Open our minds. Let us understand you and let us walk humbly, Father, with you all the days of our life. Holy Spirit, come. This time is yours. It's not mine. It's not the people here. It's your time. It's your time to do surgery on hearts. It's your time to transform us and change us. Lord, do your mighty work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit this morning. We ask that, Lord God. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Great to see everyone this morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Everyone's doing well. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we can bring you a Bible. Or you can follow along on the screen. And I'll have the verses up on the screen. But this morning, we're going to make our way through all of 1 Peter chapter 5. And by way of introduction, I want to read three verses in this, in this chapter to open it up with. And that's 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 6. But we're going to go back and go verses 1 through 14. But verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experience of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What I love about the Word of God is, and, and this is why we study it, this, it gives us practical application for everyday living. It addresses everything in life. All circumstances of life, all people in all situations. It meets our need. Family, Christians, uh, gentlemen, ladies, this is what builds your life. It's the word of God. Open your heart and let God do his work. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in your life as we study it verse by verse. You know, we're not here to be academias, but we're here, uh, you know, we're here beggars. We're just getting, we're from one beggar to another beggar. We're here to get into the word and let it transform us and change us. So the title of my message this morning is Be Humble, Be Watchful, and Be Hopeful. That's the picture I see as I study this passage. That's the layout. Be humble, be, be humble, be watchful, and be hopeful. And that's what Peter is instructing his audience. We remember the, the context, the historical context of 1 Peter is what? Peter is writing to persecuted Christians. 
Christians that are, in, uh, that are undergoing heat and, uh, and, and persecution and suffering for their faith. And I think for us, the application will be as we move closer and closer to the rapture of the church, as we move closer and closer to the, in the last days, which we are in, that the heat will be turned up. So there's loads of application in this passage for you and I this morning. So without further ado, let's dive into 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and partakers also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verses 1 through 7, I'm, the idea I'm, I'm capturing as I teach is verses 1 through 7 is this, be humble. It's talking about being humble. Humble, And the first thing Peter's going to do is he's going to give instruction to church leadership. So if you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, if you're in a leadership role, this is very applicable to how we do business and how we do ministry within the church. Um, he, says the, the, he says, therefore, I exhort the elders. Uh, this could be the pastors, the elders, the overseers. Some of your translations uh, use the phrase bishops. But what, is, what, what does he say? He says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Okay? What we need in our church are not CEOs. We don't need presidents. We don't need head honchos. We need servant leadership. And it starts with the pastor it goes with the elders, it goes with the deacons, it goes throughout church leadership. We are not in charge. Yes, we provide leadership and oversight, but we are servants to the body of Christ. We are servants. I am your servant to serve you the word of God. Uh, to shepherd the flock, he says in verse 2, to exercise oversight means that we care for the flock. How do we care for the flock? I point you to the scripture. That's what I do. That's my job as the shepherd. I point you to scripture and I point you to Christ. Church leadership is called to protect the flock. We're called to protect the flock from false teachers and unbiblical teaching. Okay? If I see a brother or a sister following a known false teaching or a heretical teacher or bad teaching, I'm going to go to them and say, hey, bro, you know, hey, sis, you need to take a look at this. This is, this is probably not the best teaching that you should be following. But that's our job. That's our job. And that's the job of a faithful leader is, is to, for sound, solid, biblical teaching. And overall, our job is to look after and care for the flock. It's, it's interesting uh, in, in the scriptures that it ref, the uh, Christians are referred to as sheep. Because sheep have a tendency to go astray. Sheep have a tendency to go left, go right. And, and what does a sheep need more than anything? A herd of sheep? They need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to lead them and guide them and point them to the water. Point them to the food. Point them to the shelter. And that's what, that's what we do. We point you to the food, the water, and the shelter. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and to his kingdom. Then he continues in verse two. He says, not under compulsion, but voluntary according to the will of God. No one should ever be forced into a place of ministry. Uh, you see church leadership, we are driven 
not by uh, it's a job, but we are driven by a calling, a divine calling that God has placed upon our lives to lead and guide and shepherd the body of Christ. We are driven by a calling. We are driven, driven by a, a love for God. You know, I, I love serving the body of Christ. That, that serving the body of Christ comes and flows out of God's calling and my love for him. But also, you got to be a people person. you got to be a people person, meaning that you got to love people. You got to love people, and you got to be ready to deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you got to be willing to show grace. And you got to be willing to come alongside people. And you got to be willing to help them. But you have to do it voluntarily, not under compulsion. If, if a person is forced into ministry, then eventually they'll find their way out of ministry. Because it's not easy when you're dealing with people uh, and dealing with the brokenness caused by sin in the world. Then he also says there in verse 2, he says, not for sordid gain. Ministry is never a place to get rich. And it's never a place for a church leadership to squeeze the flock, you know, like a wet rag, get as much as you can out of them when it comes to money. That is not what ministry is about. That, that is not what ministry is about. And unfortunately, many churches have a reputation that all they want is the money. They're singing that song by Tom Cruise, saying, show me the money. And that should never be the focus of a church. Money should never be the focus. Our focus is serving people in the body of Christ. And as a, as a Christian develops, they'll give, they'll support their church. We should all support our church. But that is never, ever the focus. That's why we don't pass the plate. We let you do it online before or after service at the back offering plate because let it never be said of Calvary Chapel Irma that they are after our money. We're not. We're after your soul. We're after your soul being committed to Christ, period. Verse 2, he says, with eagerness, uh, church leadership, pastor, elder, deacon, there, 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 there needs to be an eagerness. There needs to be a zeal. There, be, there needs to be an excitement. I can't wait to get to church. I can't wait to teach the students tonight. I can't wait to worship. I can't wait to get, to get together with my brothers and, and get into the word. I can't wait to go out there and witness. There needs to be a zeal and an excitement. And when people see that zeal and excitement in your life, they're going to want to know about your Jesus. They're going to want to know, man, what's got you so excited? What's got you so pumped up? Dude, you don't understand. I've been forgiven of my sins. I've got a new life in Christ. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. One day I'm going I'm to see my Jesus face to face. And there needs to be a zeal and excitement about Christianity and about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not this somber, religious, traditional, you know, uh, liturgical, dead, dry, boring experience in Christianity. We are alive. We are alive in Christ. He has resurrected you. And so let that zeal, let that excitement flow through us to the world and in church leadership and into the body. There needs to be an expectation and faith that God will move mightily when it comes to church leadership. There needs to be an expectation. Let's continue. Verse 3. Uh, and, it, it, and it always, again, humble leadership, joyful leadership, servant leader. This is servant leadership, being humble. Verse 3, he says, not yet as lording it over those allotted 
to your charge. Again, the point is church leaders, we do not lord over the body of Christ. Again, I, uh, the pastor is not the president. He's not the CEO. He's not the boss. He's not the head honcho. He is the shepherd servant to the body. He shepherds the body. He serves the body. Uh, church leadership, starting with the pastor, we, we love the body. We lead the body. We care for the body. That's ministry. That's ministry. And we, and we do our very best to look after the whole person with as much as we can. We first minister to their, to their soul, to their hearts with the gospel. Then we minister to their minds with counseling. And then we do our best to minister to their physical needs also, to the whole entire person. Um, but, but again, we're, we're, we don't lord over. You know, you're not accountable to me, okay? You're accountable to God in your relationship. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your Christianity, is, is, is your responsibility between you and the Lord. It doesn't come through me to him. It goes directly from you to him, from him to you. And then it says in verse 3, but proving to be examples to the flock, church leaders. We need to be examples of serving. You know, if you're in church leadership, you need to be an example of serving the body. You need to be an example of evangelism. I don't just tell you guys how to evangelize and reach out, but I do evangelism myself, and I'm reaching out to people and trying to help people. Faithfulness, you know, we, we, we leaders, servant leaders within the body, we need to uh, demonstrate faithfulness. We need to demonstrate stewardship. And when the church leadership, starting with the pastor on in the leadership, when they do these, when they exercise these, nine times out of 10, the people will follow. You know, a church... I don't know how many, how many years y'all have been in church, how many times you've been in fellowship, but people follow their leader. You can, you can name a pastor of any church in this city, and I can tell you what his people are generally like because they emulate their leaders. And that's good as long as the leader is being an example, as long as he's not lording over it, and as long as he's lovingly serving the body. Let's continue. Verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you're in church leadership, man, this is one of the things that we look forward to. This is one of the things that we look forward to. If you're in church leadership, when you step into eternity, you will hear the sweet and precious words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. See, in church leadership, we're not doing it to be seen by men. We're not doing it to... Uh, Make a name for ourselves. The, the, the authentic, real motive behind serving in the body of Christ, whether you're a pastor, leader, elder, deacon, or whatever ministry, is you're doing it for Christ. And what, and what does he say when the chief shepherd appears, talking about his return, you will receive the unfading clown of glory. Our goal in ministry is not to please people and tell people what they want to hear. Rather, it is to be faithful to Jesus and tell people what God clearly says in his word. At Calvary Chapel, there will be no ear tickling. It will be solid biblical truth that you can build your life upon. That's why we go verse by verse, man. This protects me. This, this keeps me in the zone of teaching and not going off into some crazy teaching, but it's clearly teaching what the scripture says verse by verse. Then he, he continues in verse 5. 
He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God opposes, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Um, I love this in the opening of verse 5 where he says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to our elders. If you go over to Titus, Titus says that the younger women are to learn from the older women. And Peter is saying here that the younger men are to learn from the older men. I think we've missed this mark. I think we've missed this mark in a lot of churches. And I think we need to get back to that. Okay? I'm not saying that we have it all together here. But I think a lot of churches struggle. You know, a lot of church, a lot of church bodies are older or, or younger or somewhere in between. But we need to have that solid mix of younger generation, older generation. The older generation setting the example for the younger generation. I think that's very, very important. You know, we have a lot of seasoned veteran Christian men in here. And I believe there's a lot of young men that could learn from these older gentlemen. And likewise, we have a lot of godly women that are older in this church that I think it would benefit the younger ladies greatly if we started pairing them up and joining them together so they can input into each other's lives. But he says, for, but, but uh, after he says that, the, the, the driving point of verses 5 and 6 is where he says in verse 5, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The pride is the greatest sin of, of mankind. It, it is the reason for the fall. Is when people, is, is when Adam and Eve said they can do it on their own. They rejected God's way. Pride says, I can do it on my own. I do not need God. When somebody says that, they are exercising the sin of pride. You know, it's when uh, uh, pride, the opposite of humility, which is what the, the passage is talking about, the uh, pride is when we trust in ourselves and not in the Lord. And I look at myself and I'm thinking to myself, there is nothing in and of myself that's worthy of trusting, especially when it comes to my eternal salvation. We need to put our trust in the Lord and not in ourselves. We don't need to think that we have it all together. You know, we need to look to him. See, God is perfect. We are not. And so we need to look to him who is perfect, knowing that we're not. That's walking in humility. Humility is the hallmark of the Christian life. Humility is understanding how big God is and how little you are. And the ultimate picture of humility in our life in 2021 is you and I submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's when, it's humility is when we, we take ourselves ourself off the throne and we look to Christ. We look to Christ over and over. Paul had every, Paul had revelations had this supernatural experience on the road to Damascus. He had every reason to boast. He had every reason to say, I'm in charge, I'm calling the shots, and this is how it's going to be. But that is not the attitude that the Apostle Paul had in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also 
for the interest of others. So here, Peter talks about humility in verse 5 of our passage. Paul talks about humility in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And when you put those together, another picture of humility in submitting to God is also in our relationship with each other, and that is placing others, others' needs above yourself. That's also walking in humility. It's looking at your brother and sister and saying, I see their need, I've got needs, but I'm going to place theirs first. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to do my very best to take care of them. This was modeled, by the way, this was modeled by Jesus himself in his earthly ministry. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus was on this earth, he could have said, I created that moon. I created this earth. I formed life. I gave life. I was there at creation. He could have spoke and the universe would crumble. But in his earthly ministry, he exercised humility in placing his disciples first and placing you and I first. Think about it. I think the, the thing that grabs my mind the most when I think about humility and I think about Christ is him washing the disciples' feet. Washing them dirty, nasty, had been in sandals, probably all cruddy and dirty from, from, the, from Palestine, from the dirt and the ground, but he washed the disciples' feet. God, the creator of Mars and Jupiter and Venus and the endless universe who created all the heavens is now washing their stinky feet. I think about his humility as he died on the cross. This is God. God died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. This is humility. Christ has given us an example to follow in denying ourselves, placing him first, and placing others' needs before our own. Let's continue verse 7. He says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I mentioned this in the opening. This is why I love the word of God. I love the word of God for this purpose. It addresses everything you need. It addresses everything you need for today. For today, brothers and sisters, it has everything you need. Are, are, maybe you're here and you're dealing with anxiety. Are you struggling with anxiety right now? Is your blood pressure high? Are, are you wrestling in the area of anxiety? If your answer is yes, Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Maybe you're here, you're dealing with fear. Maybe you have a fearful heart, something's going on. Something with your health, something with your family. You have a fearful heart. If you do, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Maybe you're dealing with worry, and you can't shake it, and you're constantly worrying. What do you do with worry? Cast it upon him. He cares for you. He's your shepherd, okay? 
you can give it to him. You can give it to him. No matter what you're facing, you can give it to the Lord. The only hard part, the only difficult part, though, is when you give it to him, don't pick it back up. Don't pick it back up, but give it to him. And say, Lord, uh, you know, are, are, you, are, are you weighted down by the cares of this world? 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write verse 7 for you and I living today. Friends and family, cast all your anxieties on Christ Jesus. Why? Because your shepherd, he cares for you. We need to remember that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the righteous judge. The angels surround the throne. They cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And he is all those things. But he is also, on top of all those things, he is a loving shepherd. A loving shepherd for your soul. So cast your anxieties on him. So that was, that was be humble. That was my, the portion on be humble, verses 1 through 7. Now we're going to move into the second word I gave for my sermon title, which is be watchful. We need to be watchful. We need to understand, family, that there's a real spiritual warfare. There's a real Satan that opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he opposes believers living for Christ. There is a real devil. There is a real satanic evil being, our adversary, who, who goes around, as the text says, like a roaring lion. And he's out there, and he is in the heavenly realms. And he wants to wreak havoc in your life, and he wants to keep people as far as possible from coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. So the first thing Peter says in this passage is, Christians, think clearly. Think clearly. Use sound judgment. Be sober. That word sober means don't be intoxicated. Now, he's not talking about alcohol here. He's talking about don't be intoxicated by the world. Don't be intoxicated by the worldly, by sin. Don't be intoxicated by the worldly philosophies. Don't be, don't be intoxicated by the worldly way of thinking. We have to think clearly, biblically, with our minds, okay? It, when it comes to Christianity, we don't check our minds at the door. Our mind is part of the package. Our mind, our heart, our soul, everything. So we need to be sober and be on the alert. Be watchful. And he says, your adversary, the devil, verse 8. He says, the adversary, your adversary, not the adversary, your adversary, the believer's adversary, the devil. He's talking about Satan here. You know, and if you are here and you are not a Christian, Satan will do everything possible to keep you from Christ. He will give you every reason to not believe. He will uh, persuade you to not trust in Christ, to not look to him. He will throw his evil darts and his evil arrows to keep you as far from Christ as possible. But notice how Peter describes him here in verse 8. He describes him as the adversary. The adversary. You know, an adversary is, is, is one that is against you. Satan is against you. Satan hates you. Satan hates the believer. 
And he seeks to destroy the believer's life. He just seeks to destroy all people's life because he is our adversary. His goal is to keep you as far, from, far, as, po- as, far as possible to keep you away from coming to know Christ. That's why if you know Christ and you're a Christian and you're a believer, you have defeated Satan. You have thwarted his plans because you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the light of the world is living inside of you. And Satan is defeated. Because I do not, uh, Satan cannot possess a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he can affect their minds, but he cannot enter our hearts. And then it says there, he prowls around. Verse 8, he says he prowls around. This is a picture of a lion in the African bush. What does a lion in the African bush do? They ambush unexpecting animals. Satan attempts to ambush our lives with lies, deception, and sin. He tries to persuade us. He tries to move us away from the gospel. You know, it says, it says there in verse 8, I'm belaboring this because I want you to see it and understand it, but it, but it says he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan cannot enter a believer's heart, but he can roar. He can roar, and his roar can be deafening in our minds. We call this spiritual warfare, where he seeks to destroy people with drugs, alcohol, pornography, sin, deception, lies. But if you and I will put on the full armor of God, that is, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, if we'll lift up the shield of faith, if we'll take up the sword of the Spirit, if we'll gird our loins with truth and plant our feet in the gospel of peace, we can win the fight. Why? Because you see, there is a greater lion. There is a greater lion. And he is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5, 5 says, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has triumphed. The Lord Jesus Christ has defeated Satan by his death on the cross. And we, you and I can partake of that same victory and that same triumph by virtue of our faith in Christ. The purpose of the Son of God manifest, John says, that we'll be studying here in a couple of months, was to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus has triumphed, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he has defeated this roaring lion. And again, his roar is loud, but the roar, the roar that we hear, I do not believe is in our hearts, but his roar is against our minds. And that roar can be deafening. It can be, you know, Christians, you know, when you become a Christian, you're not exempt from spiritual warfare. You know, when you become a believer, that's actually when the fight begins. You know, I, I didn't have no battles. I didn't have no struggles before I became a believer. It was once I became a believer and I was filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden, man, the mind became the battlefield. And that's exactly where it's at. The battlefield is in the mind. How do we, how do we win that battle? We have to wash our minds with the Word of God. We've got to be in church. We've got to be in fellowship. We've got to be in prayer. And we've got to be trusting in the Lord. So we need to be watchful, humble, humble in serving the body, humble in leadership, watchful of Satan's 
attacks. His days are short. He's got a destiny that scripture points out in the eternal lake of fire. But until that point, until he's locked in that abyss, we fight him through spiritual warfare here on this earth. The third, the third thing uh, that we're going into in this passage, I believe in verses 9 through 14, is he's telling us to be hopeful. To be hopeful. The title of my message was, Be Humble, Be Watchful, and Be Hopeful. Let's take a look at it in verse 9. He says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Family, we got to be firm in our faith, especially in difficult times. We have to stand firm. We have to stand firm in your faith, stand firm in what you believe, and be faithful to Christ Jesus. We got to hold firmly to the Word of God, and we cannot be shaken, and we cannot compromise our biblical, godly values. We have to hold firm. There's a, there's a wave of compromise going throughout the churches, going across Christianity. And we got to lift up the shield of faith and say, we will not bow, but we will hold firmly to what the word of God says. And, 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 but resist him, resist Satan, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren all over the world. This is not just happening at Calvary Chapel, okay? This is happening all across Columbia. This is happening all across South Carolina in churches, in, in godly, Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching churches. They're facing difficulty. And it's happening all across the world, from Costa Rica to Europe. We understand that all of our brothers and sisters experience this battle. But we're united by the Holy Spirit, submitted under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, learning from the Word of God, and that enables us to endure. That enables us to be hopeful that we will make it. You will make it. You will make it, okay? I will make it, and you will make it. Because we're, we're going we're gonna to be humble, we're going to be watchful, and we're going to be hopeful. Verse 10, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect. I love these words, okay? We could... I, I almost broke out the Greek, but I said, no, I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you the definition of these words. But this makes for an awesome study in your own time to break down these words in verse 10. He says, Christ will himself, he will do this in your life. He will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Friends and family, we are hopeful in suffering, in difficulties, in trials, I love what he, in verse 10 he says, after you have suffered for a while. In other words, there will be times of suffering. There will be times of difficulty. But have hope in the suffering. Have hope in the difficulty. Why? Because it says, the first one there is he will perfect you. This word perfect, Blue Letter Bible says, it means to mend, to restore. It means uh, to, to pick up the broken pieces. And how many of you know that that's how Christ operates in our life, even in the difficult times when we're broken and we're broken by sin and we're, and we're going through difficult times or we're going through suffering, Christ will perfect us. He will mend us, the, 
the thought behind that word mending back in those days was how they would mend nets. Nets would, would break, have holes in them. They'd be tattered. They'd be sh- shredded. And, and the fishermen would mend the nets back together. He will pick up the broken pieces in your life. And he will mend you. And he will restore you in difficult times. The second word there is confirm. That word confirm means to turn resolutely in the right direction. When you turn to, when you're trusting in Christ and you're being faithful, he will turn you in the right direction in life. He will direct your path. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will, here it is, direct your path. He will confirm you. The third word there that Christ will do in our difficulties, in our persecutions, in our trials and tribulations, he will strengthen us. That the Greek word for strengthen, it means to make strong, to make strong and steadfast. As we as Christians, sometimes we are weak. Sometimes we are frail. And if you're honest, I'm being honest, sometimes I am weak. Sometimes I am frail spiritually, okay? In my walk with the Lord, I find my times where I'm struggling and I'm weak. But when I look to Christ, according to verse 10, he will strengthen me. That word strength, it means to make strong, to make steadfast. That's what we can expect from God as as we are committed to him. And then finally, the the fourth word there in verse 10, it says, he will establish you. He will establish you. You know what that word established means? It means he'll give you a firm foundation. He'll give you a firm foundation. You know, when you build a house, a house is only as good as the foundation. If the foundation is is not solid, the house will not be solid. But if the foundation is solid, the house will last a lot longer, okay? And we will last and we will make it with the firm foundation of Christ, with the firm foundation of word. We can expect these times, we can expect these from the Lord in our times of difficulty, in our times of spiritual warfare, in our times of suffering, we can be hopeful, okay? So when you're beaten down and you're tired or any of those things that we've talked about, suffering, persecution, difficulties, just understand, be hopeful, be hopeful. It says Christ himself will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Praise the name of the Lord. Verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the summation of the Christian life. This is the summation of Christian life. That Christ rules and reigns in our life. That Christ rules and reigns in our life. See, our hope, the Christian's hope, is not in this world. But it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his kingdom. And one day, his kingdom is going to come to earth. In the millennial reign, the literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, where we will no longer live by faith, but we will live by sight, and we will see our Jesus face-to-face in his kingdom. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our heart's desire, my heart's desire, I hope your heart's desire, is that we want his dominion in our life. Lord Jesus Come and rule and reign in my heart. Let that be our heart cry, to rule and reign, that his dominion be forever and ever throughout this life 
and into eternity. Verse 12, he says, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that. Look at this, family. Please look at this at the end of verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Everything that you and I talked about, everything that I just preached to you on, on being humble, being, being humble, walking in humility, serving the body, being watchful of the spiritual warfare, being hopeful. He says there in verse 12, this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Once you get into God's grace and you're walking in God's grace, stand firm in it. Don't be moved away from grace. Don't go to tradition. Don't go to religion. Don't go to being legalistic. Well, that's just my religion. No, walk in grace and stand firm in grace. That's why I love Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith is the emphasis on grace. It's the grace of God. The grace of God saved you. The grace of God will keep you and the grace of God will carry you. And one day the grace of God will usher you into eternity. It's by grace, for grace, through his grace. It's grace, grace, grace. Amen? Amen. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Family, this is what it means to be humble, to be watchful, and to be hopeful. Is that we stand firm in our relationship with Christ. Verse 13, let's finish this up. Finish up this book. He, he says, uh, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Uh, verse 13, she is a reference to the body of Christ who is in Babylon. I, I doubt very seriously there's no evidence that uh, Peter was actually in Babylon. Most more likely scenario is Peter was in Rome. And in Revelation chapter 17, Babel, the word, the phrase Babylon is used for Rome. The Roman world, either Rome or the, or the Roman world, the fallen world. And he says, sends you greetings and so does my son Mark. We believe that the, the, the gospel of Mark that you have in your New Testament was, was actually penned by Mark. But it's actually Peter's account of Jesus' life that Peter dictated to Mark and that Mark gave us what we call the... Um, the gospel of Mark, because we know that Peter and Mark were together late in the ministry, according to church fathers. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Again, this is a greeting of love. This is not a, a sensual thing. This is, this is a, a common today, what we call a handshake, a fist pump, you know, but greet each other. In other, in other words, let there be a brotherly, godly agape affection in the body of Christ. We love and care for each other. And whether you give a kiss on the cheek or a fist pump or a handshake or whatever, but let's be loving towards one another. And then he says in verse 14, he closes this book, this awesome book that we've studied over the past couple months. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful 
magnificent book. And looking at verse 14, the very end of it, where he says, Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Notice he says there, who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ? To be in Christ means that you have said, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. Please forgive me. I turn away from the old life. And I put my, I, I repent, turn from sins, and I put my faith in Jesus. You put your trust in Christ. See, we don't, we don't trust in our church. We don't trust in water baptism. We don't trust in communion. We trust in the person of Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. See, we have nothing good in and of ourselves. We don't have our own righteousness. He is our righteousness. There's nothing religious about what I just said. It's all Christ trusting in him, being born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by those who are in Christ. He's talking about believers. He's talking about believers. And if you're here this morning and you haven't repented, put your trust in Christ, you have not been born again, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that says, you know what? I'm going to trust in Christ. I'm going to turn from my sins. I'm going to invite Christ to come into my life. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come into my life and give me this new life so that I can walk in Christ Jesus. Let today be the day. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for 1 Peter chapter 5. Thank you, Father. This is our food. This is our spiritual growth. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, including myself, to, to our visitors today, that you will help us, Lord, to walk humble, to, to be watchful, and to be hopeful in our walk with you, Lord. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the food of your word. Strengthen us now, Lord. Quicken our souls by your spirit. And Lord, let us walk in your truth. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.